Welcome to Medical Matters Weekly with Dr. Trey Dobson, presented by Southwestern Vermont Healthcare and Catamount Access Television. Well, welcome everyone. Today is December 8th, 2021, and we are recording this show for a future broadcast. I'm Trey Dobson, Chief Medical Officer at Southwestern Vermont Medical Center and an emergency medicine physician with Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health. And this is Medical Matters Weekly, a show about the aspects of healthcare that matter to you most. You can submit questions to all of our shows, typically through Facebook Live and our website. Again, this one is being recorded for a future show, so we did receive some questions ahead of time. My guest that I'm very excited about today is Dr. Kay Marie King, Chief of Surgery and the Henry and Sally Schaefer Chair of the Department of Surgery at Albany Medical Center. So welcome, Kay Marie. We're so excited you're with us. Thank you for having me, and it's a pleasure to represent Albany Medical Center on this conversation. Does that title, Chief of Surgery and the Henry and Sally Schaefer Chair, fit on your badge? It sure does not, and don't tell anyone, but I rarely wear my badge. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow everybody still knows who I am, so I get by with it. So Dr. King is the first Black female Chair of Surgery at an academic health center in the nation. She earned her medical degree at Washington University in St. Louis, um, and her bio goes on and on. I'll just pick a a few items from there. She completed a fellowship at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, where she also earned, I guess, at the same time, a master's degree in biomedical science. Is that right? Yes. Uh, So going, going double, and then served in the U.S. Army during Operation Desert Storm, uh, and joined Albany Med you know, fast forward in the future on September 1st of this year. Is that correct? That's right. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to learn more about this. So why don't we just start, uh, and I do this with a lot of guests, just to ask them how they got started in in medicine in the first place. What got them interested? I, I, I share the story that I get these downloads. I listen to the universe. And at eight years old, I thought I would be an astronomer. And suddenly it came to me that I was going to be a medical doctor. And since then, I've been sharing that story with everyone. And so uh, I was packing to move and I'm looking through all my yearbooks and it all says, congratulations on becoming a doctor from elementary school all the way through. So it was just a passion that drove all of my decisions through life. Wow. Were you exposed in your home to medical professionals? Or I you wasn't. Just read about it or, okay. I just, I was just uh, one of those precocious kids that said, this is what I'm going to do. And I wanted to help people. That's great. And then you moved on though, and decided uh, not only to go into surgery, but to specialize in liver and pancreas. And I'm sure that had a lot to do with your experiences during medical school and residency, but can you elaborate a, a little bit on why you went into liver and pancreas surgery? Sure. I, Susan McClintock is a, uh, I'm telling her story now that I'm doing these interviews, but she was a uh, plastic surgeon, is still a plastic surgeon at Washington University in St. Louis. And she came to give us a talk as a second year medical student on what she did in, in, in surgery. And it captivated me. And I thought, for sure, I'm going to become a surgeon. So I started trailing her and anyone else who would let me follow them in the operating room. And when I started my third year of um, medical school, this is when, of course, you know, we, we begin to do rotations with all the specialties. And my first rotation was on surgery. And mm-hmm. I saw the liver and it was like, ah, you know, <laughs> I saw the liver, the intestines. And I said, 
this is the area of the body that I want to operate on. And uh, at that time, WashU had some amazing surgeons, Dr. Steven Strasberg, who's still there, who's a liver and pancreas surgeon. And um, he was such an influence to me in selecting the specialty with his mastery in surgery and his patience with me as a student. And, and that really led to that decision. Now that's great. And for the audience who um, may not even realize that there are specialists that focus on the liver and pancreas, let me just tell you what I remember uh, back from my medical school and, and even residency days when I did a few operations in the uh, OR or, or rotations in the OR. Gosh, these surgeries are five and six times longer than any of the other surgeries yes. that I was involved with. <laughs> they're long, up- they're complex, and the risks uh, for complications are higher. Perhaps that's why I was attracted to it. I liked the challenge, and I love the fact that I was able to impact someone's life where they could potentially live a lot longer because I'm able to remove a cancer from the liver or pancreas. So the impact to me was great. Right. I also remember that um, that the liver and pancreas surgeons would always put something on the floor that was nice and foam and soft because they knew yes. they were going to be standing for so long. Yes, I still do that. So it's great. I you talked about do. some of your role models. Do you have any others? Um, role models are so important in our in shaping our medical career. And, you know, for me, as a a young black woman, most of my role models actually were white males who really took an interest in me and and really committed to seeing my vision through and supporting my vision. And I've had so many throughout the course of my career. I'll talk about my chair from my residency, Tim Billier, who's still the surgical chair there. Claude Deschamps, my first chair who hired me at Mayo Clinic. L.D. Britt, one of the past presidents of the American College of Surgeons, uh, he's been instrumental. Mike Saar, who is one of my um, big sponsors at Mayo Clinic, he was also a huge influence. But a lot of my influence come from my peers, people just like me uh, who are going through the phases of their careers like me, and, and we sponsor each other, we mentor each other, and we support each other through the tough times. And so how did you end up in, in Albany? Um, you could blame Jennifer Sang. She's the current chair at Boston University of Surgery. Okay. And she gave me a call and said, I'm putting your name in for chair jobs all over the place. And several other people were doing the same. And I got the call from the search firm, the search committee here at Albany to, to interview. And it was the last day before they closed the process. And I said, okay, I'll think about it. And they said, well, if you think too hard, you'll miss the opportunity. So send us a letter letter of interest tonight. And I said to my husband, I'm not not sure this is what I want to do, but I liked this individual. And I think I'll I'll form a letter and send it. And I sent the letter. It was right the night before they closed the search. Wow, that's so fortuitous. I mean, and obviously it worked out for a reason. Yes. Um, You've only been here a few months, but what, what are you doing for fun around, around the area? Sleeping. <laughs> Working and sleeping, yes. No, this is a beautiful place. So mm-hmm. I, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, uh, as, as you probably read, and mm-hmm. I never really ventured to upstate New York. And it's such a secret of beauty. I wish I could show you what I see every day at my office. 
the Adirondack Mountains, the beautiful um, mom and pop shops that you miss in a lot of cities right now. It's all here, that New England vibe. And I came here and I loved it. I love the people of Albany. And so on weekends, I'm doing things, projects around the house to get our house ready for me to move in, but also, you know, visiting these quaint shops and bakeries and, and it's really exhilarating. That's great. And of course, I feel the same and probably the entire audience here from uh, Vermont, Ma Massachusetts and New York feels the same. Yes. And, and it's really uh, unfortunate that sometimes we have difficulty re recruiting physicians up this way. Uh, but once they get here, then they, they stay because they, they stay. realize they stay. what a yes. great environment it is. And of course, uh, patients at Southwestern Vermont Medical Center come to Albany for a lot of their more complex uh, surgeries. And yes. some of the folks on, on this uh, podcast that are listening uh, will likely meet you at some point in their lives. I look forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us a little bit um, about being the first Black woman in the nation to lead a, a, a surgery uh, at an academic health center. Was that a, a part of your decision to come to Albany or, or was it just uh, happen chance? Uh, it's, it's, I, I think after George Floyd and the, the crisis that really gripped the nation, people started to think about these things. And, and one of the, uh, popular conversations in surgery, the house of surgery is that, wow, we've never had a, a black female chair. Mm -hmm. And so it was a lot of commentary going on about that. So people I think understood that that had never happened. And I was surprised when people here knew that that had never happened because it wasn't something even I was thinking about. Mm -hmm. But once it did happen, um, there's a certain um, weight that comes with that. And soon after, one of my dear friends, Andrea Hayes, was appointed the chair at Howard University. And she will start there uh, in January. And so she's the second Black female chair at an yeah. academic healthcare center. And so for, for me, it means a lot because there are challenges when you break through a glass ceiling. You have to stay there because um, people aren't accustomed to seeing your face or a face like yours. And so the challenges are to be successful in the role. And, and I take that very seriously. I've had a great response from really everyone in the community uh, and really from uh, uh, folks who've never seen a person of color in a leadership role like this, it impacts them greatly because it allows them to dream big and to say, I could potentially do that one day. And so there's a lot of seriousness to this role that I take very seriously and I, I bring my best self to it every day. Boy, I love some of those words. I'm going to have to re-listen to this broadcast and write them down. Uh, you know, I, I do believe at least what I witnessed in the past 15 years is certainly more of a desire to bring diversity into our medical staff. I mean, I'm, I actually am talking about here locally, but also just in the nation. Um, but then it's difficult to figure out how we encourage that. Uh, do you have any comments on that or thoughts? I'm sure you, you, you have thought about it and probably attend conferences where people discuss it. I don't know if you've read some of the material surrounding the, the Georgia trial um, with Aubrey, where they talked about the strategy that the attorney used, where she didn't talk about race at all mm. and allowed for the facts to speak for themselves. 
I found that fascinating because that's really how I've moved in my career is to not really focus so much directly on race. But if you can create environments that people feel like they belong, it -hmm. becomes a a mood point, right? If you create environments where people feel safe and that they can bring their themselves to work, whether it's from a gender issue or racial issue, then you don't have to directly speak to those um, societal issues because people will feel safe in that environment. And so for me, it's creating spaces where everyone has a voice and you have to be intentional about that. And so whether it's a national committee that I lead or a committee within the business sphere, sphere, I'm always balancing. How many women do we have? Are we going to get enough voices? How many people from this perspective? Do we have medicine on board? I'm always thinking diversity of thought because that adds such richness to the conversation. Oh, absolutely. Without, and you point out diversity in all aspects, um, even within yes. healthcare, we can not include the right uh, specialties, the right services, right. and all of a sudden our answers are, are the same each time and we're not improving, we're not getting the outcomes we're looking for. So on the converse then, and, and I've had several shows on this, this topic, how mm-hmm. do we improve the healthcare um, across uh, diverse backgrounds of patients so that it is truly equitable? And of course, you don't have a one sentence answer to that, but what are some of your thoughts on how we can do that better? One of the great lessons I've learned from life is that you have to live life with intention. So you have to be intention. And I'll give you an example. We're looking for residency Uh, applicants. And when looking at applicants, historically, we've just used a number to say, how well did they score to filter the folks? Well, you're going to miss a lot of great people from differing backgrounds by doing that. And so one of the first things I said coming here is that we will not use that as the way to filter, but really bring through great applicants from various backgrounds to evaluate for our residency. That requires intention because it's very easy to just go with the grade point average or they come from Albany or their their fathers and mothers lived here before. It's very easy to, to go to that place. But when you decide that your intention is to diversify, then you have to open up the way that you evaluate um, because people come and bring different um, um, skill sets from different walks of life, and you, you may miss out on a great candidate when doing that. Absolutely. And you know, I mean, I actually struggled with those types of questions years ago too, because the first thing initially when you when you get when you start is well, if we if we don't use the numbers, then how are we going to know that these, you know, the folks are are intelligent, which is of course so short-sighted. Um, yeah. and we're not going to choose people that, that aren't going to, you know, uh, make well, it because it's not fair to themselves, right? right? Um, and yeah, and I appreciate that. And it is hard at first, but once you start looking at, at candidates. So when we do that, though, when we talk about our, our community as a whole, you know, Vermont itself, where I live, is, is not diverse. But yet there is still inequity in care. And I think awareness is one of just the key foundation points um, so that we can get the care. If we're aware of it, then we can start thinking about it. But if we're not aware of it, we're, we're not going to change anything. 
And it's important to to change, to alter that conversation by having people from different backgrounds in your environment to help you navigate that. But I caution, I caution leaders all the time. And I know in my world, we call it a black tax, right? Because if you do have that singular individual, you tax them to do a lot of the work within this space. And I've tried to push communities that I'm a part of to not look to me to make the change, right? Sometimes right. It's, it's better coming from someone who actually looks like you. And so I will partner with you, but we all own the change. We all own learning and understanding our communities so that we can deliver the best healthcare to them that's possible. And that comes with a lot of empathy, a lot of sympathy and a lot of intention and awareness to what the needs are for the people who are in your community. So I'm going to shift gears here a bit because I just want to yeah. be mindful of time. Um, talk to us a little bit about being a surgeon, specifically a, a liver and pancreas surgeon, and how you divide that time between the OR and other responsibilities. And I bring this up because I, I know that people in the community want to hear uh, all, what their references are often TV shows, right? So yes. the TV shows, <laughs> you know, you, there's all kinds of things that happen. But tell us about your day to day. Uh, this job, uh, these jobs, there are two main roles. One is covering the hospital and, and, and surgical care in the hospital. And then my department of surgery, which are faculty members, residents, and all levels of trainees. Mm-hmm. And that requires a lot of time, a lot of meetings, a lot of relationship building. And so to start, excuse me, I don't have a clinical practice right now. And uh, I took it off my wall so I could have a prettier background, but I have these big graphs on how I'm going to break up my time. It's important to me to see patients and care for patients. Mm -hmm. They speak to me of the needs in the environment. And when I'm working with them, I can understand how I need to optimize the environment to make their experience the best that we can make. And so I have to make time. So I will make time to do that and operate. It'll probably just be a clinical day a week uh, because the other responsibilities are are so high and traveling to our affiliate hospitals are a part of that. So, Mm -hmm. but I can't lose it. I am so fed when I see patients and and interact with patients. So I I cannot lose my, my, my contact with patients at all. So I'll have to build it in there. Sure. You know, you kind of said something. I'm going to lead you into the this uh, quote that that I have written down here. Listening is as important in leadership as it is in patient care, which comes from you. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more on that quote? You know, I, I try not to. I try to be the best Camry King I can be. And what I've learned over time is sometimes we spend so much effort trying to be seen, and that's what I. And that's some of the issues when you come from an underrepresented background, you want to be seen, you want to be seen for your, for what you can deliver. And I've gotten to a point where I don't have that drive anymore. So I'm not so focused on trying to be seen, but rather hearing because when you can see and watch people's body language, that's a major main part of listening. And if you're speaking, you can't watch their body language, you can't watch how they're interacting with others in the room, and you can't read the room. And so I've learned to be more silent and to listen and so that I can hear what the needs are and then I could be of service to whomever I'm, I'm speaking with. Uh, and it's so critical for leadership to be able to listen. 
Absolutely. It's, it's powerful. And um, you have to continue, or at least I have to continue to be aware and I have to remind myself of that. So I'm probably going to take your quote and, and put it on my wall <laughs> so that I can see it every day and remind myself to sometimes be quiet and, and listen. It's so important. Uh, tell us a little bit about how your military experience uh, was and or how it affects your, your current role and your current job as a surgeon. I, as an immigrant, I fell into that, literally. I, I was recruited because I visited a friend at her job and there was a recruiting station and they said, come on in and take the test. You could just go for the summer. And I believed that. And oh I took the test and did so well. Hmm. I was in college and then um, Bill Clinton uh, told me, come on over. I know you're not trained or anything, but you're going to be activated for Desert Storm. And so what a great experience as a 19, 20 year old to get into an organization that teaches you how to be focused and how to have self-discipline and how to meet friends from other walks of life. I learned that so early with the military and it has served me well. So when I would wake up for boot camp at 3, 8, 3 a.m., I knew I could be a surgeon because you have to wake up early and work long hours. And so the military has given me a certain sense of resiliency um, that will have allowed me to move with the peaks and valleys, valleys of my life. Oh, that's great. I have, uh, you know, several friends also that were in Desert Storm and then in later um, in, in, in later parts of the military that are otolaryngologists and, and other surgeons. And they say the same thing. Um, it really helps set their foundation. And in fact, in, in a way, it makes me think I, I really wish I could have participated in that. Um, but at the same time, I respect and, and tremendously support. And thank you for, for serving your country. Thank you. When I say it to my students now, they have no idea what I'm talking about. Operation what? I was like, how did I become the older person in the room? <laughs> so you've been living in Atlanta for a while, even though you're from, um, um, we're up in New York. Uh, yeah. How has it been the transitioning back to the Northeast? Comfortable. Uh, I'm so used to an environment like this. I made sure my husband and I had our winter boots and our North Face coats and, and that will be fine in the cold, but I have loved having the seasons of the fall and now winter. And so it's, it's really nice to be back. That's great. And we'll take this offline sometime, but I'd love to talk more uh, myself being from the South and, and doing my training in Memphis and uh, yeah. lots of people ending up in Grady. So that's so great. Thank you so much for joining us, Kabri. It's been, for it's been awesome. Thank and you I look so forward much. to talking to you again in the future. I know others will want to reach out to you. Uh, and like we said, we'll be sharing patients here soon. And, uh, and we're looking I'll forward look to that forward relationship. forward to the collaboration. Have a great day. And you too. And I'll also thank um, Mike Cutler from Cat TV, Ray Smith from Southwestern Vermont Healthcare, and Ashley Jowett from Southwestern Vermont Healthcare. I'm Trey Dobson. Go out and find joy in everything you do, even in the face of adversity. And we will see you next week.